Spectrum's brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. The Scripps College is one of the most comprehensive colleges of communication in the country. It offers a foundation of creativity and practice so that graduates can move the world forward. In particular, the Scripps College offers challenging coursework that holds students to high expectations, an integrated curriculum that combines a variety of disciplines and ideas, and student-driven media organizations where students can apply these skills and gain experience that enables them to hit the ground running upon graduation. That's the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. Welcome to Spectrum. Spectrum features conversations with an eclectic group of people. Some are famous and some are not, but the common thread is that they all have captivating stories. Today we're talking to Dr. Hale Esfandiare, the founding director of the Middle East program at the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars. She's also an author of the book, My Prison, My Home, One Woman's Story of Captivity in Iran. And Dr. Robert S. Litvak, Vice President for Scholars and the Director of International Security Studies at the Wilson Center. He also served on the National Security Council staff as Director of Nonproliferation in the first Clinton administration. We're talking about Iran and the U.S., one year after the controversial nuclear agreement with Iran in July of 2015. Dr. Litvak, let me start with you. Uh, we've just had the uh, first anniversary of the uh, nuclear uh, agreement. Uh, we've had mixed reviews in, in the media about the success. Uh, give me your evaluation. Well, thank you. Um, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, the JCPOA, was concluded a year ago between the world's major powers and Iran. It took protracted negotiations to achieve what was really a straightforward agreement that trades off transparency for technology, that Iran is, gets access to uh, nucle civil nuclear energy, but in return for assurances that this nuclear program's not masquerading as a weapons program. The agreement uh, over 15 years, places meaningful constraints on Iran's nuclear program, blocking its pathways to a possible weapon. Now, the reason that the agreement took so long to negotiate this straightforward trade-off between technology and transparency is that in America, the, the nuclear deal with Iran has been a proxy, a surrogate for a more fundamental debate about how the United States should respond to the challenge posed by so-called rogue states. Should the U.S. objective be to change the conduct of these regimes, or should it be to change the regimes itself? The JCOPOA is a deal, an agreement, a transaction with Iran. It is not a grand bargain solving all issues. And that's really the, 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 the rub, because the agreement addresses the nuclear issue, but it, does, it did not link to other areas of concern of Iranian behavior. 
I think the agreement in the narrow terms, the discrete terms of the agreement, is achieving its objectives, constraining Iran's nuclear program, its capabilities. The critique of the program is that it doesn't go beyond the nuclear to address these other issues. And the Obama administration argued with reason that if the negotiators had attempted to link it to all these other issues, we would have never gotten to yes with Iran. So let me turn to you, Dr. Esfandiari. Um, you were a prisoner of the Iranian government back in 2007, uh, spent 105 days in, in solitary confinement. So you know of what you speak. You had a uh, article on Wall Street Journal's think tank blog back on July 11th of this year talking about uh, a number of arrests and detainments on um, what we would consider fairly flimsy charges. Uh, tell us about those. Um, when I was in jail, I was dealing with the um, Ministry of Intelligence. The people who have been arrested recently, and I focused in my article on dual nationals, two American Iranians, one Canadian Iranian, one uh, British Iranian, and one French Iranian. In the meantime, since the article appeared, they have arrested a third Iranian American and detained him. Uh, this uh, is now the prerogative of the Revolutionary Guards. The Revolutionary Guards Intelligence Group is now dealing with a political prisoner, and uh, they are not accountable to the president of Iran, Mr. Rouhani. They are not accountable to the Ministry of Justice nor the Ministry of Intelligence. They deal directly with the judiciary and they get their orders from the supreme leader. I mean, the rest of these dual nationals reflects a an ongoing, really, struggle between uh, Mr. Rouhani's government and the more radical element in the uh, Iranian regime and system. And just going back to what my colleague Rob said, you know, in uh, um, Iran, the Supreme Leader made it clear both before and after the deal that he is not interested in having any uh, political and diplomatic relations with uh, the United States. So therefore, as Rob said, the deal was a very technical deal. Well, you, you said in your uh, article that some of the uh, accusations were causing confusion in the public mind or spreading lies. Uh, uh, were there any charges beyond that? I know there have been some indictments, but it hasn't been clear as to the nature of the charges. Look, it's very uh, common in Iran that people are indicted and the charges are not announced. Therefore, one can guess what the charges in these cases can be. For example, 
undermining the security of the regime. It is a very vague, you know, terminology or pushing for a velvet revolution to overthrow the regime, you know, a copy of what happened in the in some of the former East European uh, countries. But so far as we speak today, we don't know what the real charges are. And some of the people charged, uh, a world-renowned artist, for example, a professor of anthropology, uh, a woman who had her 22-year-old month uh, child taken away. Uh, these are just not ordinary citizens, are they? Uh, no, they are not ordinary citizens, but I think uh, they basically they don't care whether they arrest ordinary citizens or uh, renowned international uh, academic or artists. Actually, the artist was never arrested. The artist was stopped at the airport, and in the meantime, he was able, there was such an international outcry that he was able uh, to leave uh, the country. So going back to you, Dr. Litvak, uh, the, all of this going on with human rights, I guess we could put it under that umbrella term, uh, I know it's n not necessarily a part of the agreement that you were talking about, but uh, it, it's got to cause some at least public concern about the agreement. Well, this is one of the perennial issues in dealing with autocratic states of whether one addresses discrete kind of foreign policy issues that affect American interests in their own terms, or do, do we link those issues with internal issues that dates back to the Soviet Union uh, and the uh, controversy over detente policy of whether, um, and it came up in the context by, of, of human rights with Senator Scoop Jackson, of whether the United States should explicitly link internal change to uh, external issues like arms control that affected American interests. The Obama administration has defended the nuclear deal in discrete transactional terms, namely that it addresses an urgent security threat. And I think um, uh, reading the Iranian debate and, and talking to experts like Hala, it's clear that, that, that the Rouhani uh, President Rouhani's defended the, the the agreement in terms of sanctions relief, practical uh, a practical argument for for the people there. So it's on both sides. It's they've talked about it as a transaction, and as Hollis said, the supreme leaders ruled out any type of grand grand bargain. I think the implicit bet, and it's not, it is implicit, that Obama is making is that if the nuclear issue can be addressed through this agreement for 15 years, we'll see where Iran is as a society. I mean, I don't think no one has any excessive uh, optimism about it, but uh, in Iran, civil society, there are elements that are that do want to, to, to see a change in that society. It's an indigenous process. Uh, external actors like the United States can't influence that process. And in fact, if they get involved um, I mean, that's what landed Hala in prison, this char absurd charge that the United States is seeking to foment a velvet revolution uh, uh, in, in Iran. We have to let the process play out over time. And in this respect, the U.S. strategy toward Iran has echoes of that that Kennan advocated towards the Soviet Union to give time for an internal process to play out. 
and it's it's indeterminate the outcome, but but it's an implicit bet I think that underlies the uh, the Obama strategy toward Iran, and we'll just have to see. But the alternative was a nuclear program on the verge of a breakout, and that would have been uh, have had you know very. Uh, urgent national security implications for the United States and the region. So that's what the that's what the, the administration, the Obama administration, was focused on with reason. Let me ask both of you. Uh, obviously, Iran has uh, benefited from this agreement, and and certainly uh, we've learned that they benefit economically from the agreement. Does that economic benefit? Uh, have any bearing on the internal conflict between the president and the supreme leader? Um, I'm going to give you the Iranian version, and Rob will tell you the fact. Okay. There is is a great unhappiness in Iran about the results of the agreement because they feel— that the United States has not kept its part of the bargain. The people are not benefiting at all economically. The economic situation has not changed. Their expectation, you know, I mean, the expectation or the promises that Mr. Rouhani's government made was that once you have the deal, all the sanctions will be lifted and therefore there will be hundreds of foreign companies uh, running to Iran and signing contracts. Even if this was the case, you know, the benefits would have not been reaped very immediately. So there is this sense of unhappiness about it in Iran among the population and among the people who are who were against the deal. Rob? Well, I think what Hala described is a result <laughs> of the fact that the United States has multiple overlapping sanctions on Iran. And I think this has been transparent from the beginning, that the nuclear sanctions would come off, but other issue areas, like we do have sanctions on Iran about human rights or about its support of of groups (coughs) designated as terrorist groups by the State Department, like Hezbollah. So some sanctions have come off. The the, the nuclear-specific ones in the United Nations, um, the multilateral ones uh, that affected banking um, and the oil sector that the European Union and the United States imposed, but the unilateral ones on the American side uh, persist. What's one seen is a certain hesitancy, though, of foreign firms to get into the Iranian market because they 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 fear, you know, it's an uns- it's uncertain of how it's going to play out, and so there's been a a, a bit of hesitancy by the foreign f- firms. One final point before I pass it back to Hala. There's been much made about how Iran's gotten $100 billion or more from this deal. <laughs> okay, it's, it's, it's $150 billion. What we're talking about is sales of Iranian oil, the revenues from which have been sitting in escrow accounts overseas. This is money owed to Iran derived from oil sales. Uh, which were not proscribed by the United Nations or anyone else, even though the United States has an oil embargo. So what we're talking about here is Iran getting access to its own money, essentially. It's not a payoff for the deal. But I'll add a point you to that. But look, even although it is Iran's money, Iran does not have access yet 
to all of it. Yeah, it's yeah. it's really, uh, I mean, Iran is uh, getting its money back on incremental steps, and this is also causing a lot of unhappiness in Iran. And also a lot of these European companies don't want to risk the sanctions again of the United States. So they don't feel comfortable even signing agreements with Iran. If they do sign agreement, it's all going to be uh, probably postponed until all these uh, points are clarified. This is a potential area of conflict between the United States and the European Union. If the United States seeks to impose so-called secondary sanctions. That is, we would sanction European companies that do business in Iran. Um, it's been hinted at by some members of Congress. That would then transform the stakes and make it an issue between the United States and Iran because these so-called secondary sanctions, extraterritorial sanctions, are, are not permissible in international law. And also, Iran needs to do its part of the deal. It has to, because it has to modernize and change some of the laws it has regarding uh, foreign direct investment and foreign investment. And uh, uh, Iran has also, uh, is trying now to change its banking system because for uh, a long period of time, because of the sanctions, Iran was cut off from the international banking system. We'll be back after this message. This program is brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. The Scripps College offers the foundation for individuals seeking to blend creativity and practice so that graduates have the freedom to direct their skills and move the world forward. The Scripps faculty takes a multidisciplinary approach to academic, professional, and social growth so that graduates have relentless optimism to navigate the changing media environment. The Scripps College of Communication is one of the most comprehensive colleges of communication in the country and was named a Center of Excellence in Ohio in 2010. It's proud to showcase the Stephen L. Schoonover Center for Communication, the brand-new facility that opened in 2015. State-of-the-art laboratory spaces and flipped classrooms are just two of the many features in this new building. Learn more about the Scripps College of Communication at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Let me ask both of you uh, again. There is constant upheaval in this country, uh, at least in public discourse, about the agreement. Uh, Let me focus in two ways. And first, let me focus on Congress. Uh, Congress seems to constantly be meddling in this, trying to chip away at the agreement, erode the agreement, basically take the power from the agreement. Uh, What impact does that have? Well, the the agreement is structured in a way and and, uh, um, such that it it limits uh, the ability of Congress to uh, affect uh, the implementation. Uh, 
the and when, when President Obama is in office, clearly any congressional uh, legislation would be vetoed by him if he saw it as, as undermining the undermining the agreement. In, it has entered our our political domain. Um, uh, many of the um, uh, Republican presidential candidates said that they would abrogate the agreement if they took office on day one. It wasn't clear what would happen on day two if they did that. <laughs> uh, Mr. Trump has been um, critical of the agreement. Um, uh, it's been suggested that if he were to assume the presidency, that that uh, reality would might moderate um, uh, might moderate his his position. But the the real the focus of the congressional criticism of the agreement goes back to the regime and that this agreement deals with a, a discrete issue, but it doesn't affect the character of the Iranian regime. It doesn't turn off all the other conduct that Iran engages in that's problematic from an American perspective. And so that when Congress, when it went to the Senate and they kept talking about the better deal, it was never clear what this better deal was going to be. Was it going to be 5,000 instead of 5,000 centrifuges, 4,000 centrifuges? <laughs> On the day that Barack Obama walked into the White House, Iran had 9,000 centrifuges spinning. So a full rollback of the program to zero was never a realistic uh, objective. President Obama made the best of a bad situation, and uh, he and his administration orchestrated, working with the European partners, orchestrated a combination of pressure and engagement uh, that brought Iran to the table and was able to come to fruition in the JCPOA. Um, Go ahead. Look. Uh, the Iranian parliament is watching very closely what Congress does. And as Congress, you know, starts talking about these issues and expressing their unhappiness, the same thing takes place in Iran. The Iranian Parliament then summons the Ministry for Foreign Affairs, Mr. Zarif, who negotiated the deal. And at some stage, they even, you know, called him a traitor. And just signing that agreement was for them an act of treason. This was, these are the conservatives and the hardliners in the Iranian parliament. So it's not that it's all one-sided, that at this end, Congress is making difficulties. At the other end, I mean, there is constantly I mean, the supreme leader and other members, hardliners, keep on saying the United States is not keeping its side of the uh, bargain. So it's it's a very tricky and difficult situation. And the Europeans are just sitting on the side and watching and waiting to see when this is over so they can start getting having their deals with Iran. This kind of rhetoric uh, probably will only increase uh, between now and the election in, in November. Uh, will this just ratchet up the arguments that you've already made, or do you see uh, more debate about this uh, causing additional problems? It it is a a foreign policy issue that has been injected into our our presidential campaign. Um, The critics of the Obama administration have not never been comfortable with his engagement strategy toward adversarial states. He, President Obama, in, in August of 2008, as a candidate, uh, gave a speech at the Wilson Center in which he advocated engaging adversarial states, Cuba, Burma, 
uh, Iran, others. And uh, this was controversial going back to my initial point about how the issue of engaging these states is, is politically problematic because of re reluctance to uh, have normal relations with, with regimes which we view as being uh, um, uh, odious in some instances like North Korea. Uh, President Obama uh, dropped the term rogue state from our foreign policy lexicon. Uh, and the, the term rogue had, had connoted a state beyond the pale, uh, the, the state with which you could not engage in normal diplomatic discourse. He, he instead, he Obama instead referred to Iran as an outlier state, meaning that Iran uh, was in, in violation of, of established international norms with respect to proliferation, uh, and uh, that if it came into compliance with those norms, then it would gain all the benefits of being integrated into, into the international system. And the, 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 the real fissure in Iranian politics that Hala described is really over this identity crisis of what kind of state Iran wants to be. And you've got revolutionary, uh, those with revolutionary fervor who want to maintain the revolutionary bona fides of the society and others who want it to be, uh, to integrate more into the outside world, have normal relations even with the United States. So it's, it's a very, as an American looking at the Iranian debate, and I should say I've been fortunate being at the Wilson Center where, where we've had just the best experts on Iran come through uh, to uh, um, inform the public about uh, the perspective inside the country, meetings at Hala, uh, you know, um, uh, organized when she, when she was uh, heading our Middle East program. It's, I've, I've benefited from that. And, we, and, and this is a critical missing dimension in the American debate is like how can we get a good read on what's happening inside Iran? And here we have to rely on the country experts. It, it's, go ahead. Doctor. No, no, no. Go ahead. No, I, I was just wondering, the, the American public, it, at least from my perception, uh, has little to no knowledge of the intricacies of this, de this debate or this agreement uh, within Iran or certainly within uh, the foreign policy uh, venues of, of Washington. I instead, it's just uh, we're trying to keep them from having nuclear weapons. They keep having human rights uh, violations. Uh, it's still a rogue state in many people's minds, even though they don't know what that term means. Uh, this seems to be a, 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 a situation where we have people in power in government understanding the intricacies, but the public doesn't, and that seems to be fodder for political campaigns, especially this kind of political campaign that we're seeing in 2016. Am I wrong? Um, um, I don't know much about uh, American politics, but I think over the years, since the establishment of the Islamic Republic and ever since the hostage crisis, Iran has been demonized in the United States for very valid reason. You know, the hostage crisis and then later on their, uh, you know, their involvement in the Middle East, first in Lebanon through putting together Hezbollah, then later on in Iraq, act of terrorism, all these things. So this, this Iran has a very negative uh, image among the population. But my sense is that if the nuclear deal is given a chance by the next Congress and by the next president, 
to make its way, you know, to develop as it was planned, these pro and if Iran pulls back from its meddling in the affairs of other Middle Eastern countries and also changes its human rights, you know, program, which is horrible. I mean, it's one of the worst in the uh, in the world. I mean, Iran, on the average, since Mr. Rouhani has become president, one, there has been one execution, if not more, a day. So I think if Iran makes all these changes, then there is a chance that the people in this country, in the United States, will once again look at Iran with different lenses. Rob? I just go back to uh, the analogy, historical analogy with the Soviet Union, where um, uh, the United States had you know, global competition with the Soviet Union. There was a kind of mutual uh, nuclear deterrent aspect to it. Uh, but the strategy we pursued for decades across administrations of both parties was containment. And um, with limited engagement, pragmatic engagement, where it was in our interest to do so. Uh, if change occurs in Iran, it's not going to come, it's going to be not going to be imposed from the outside. It's going to develop from within. And uh, the United States um, uh, has pursued this pragmatic agreement with Iran and has pushed off the possibility of an Iranian nuclear weapon for, for 15 years. We're going to have to have the patience to allow the internal processes in that country to play out um, on the margins, and really it's only on the margins, uh, we can have some outside, the outside world can have some effect, but it's mostly going to have to play out within uh, Iran itself, and uh, uh, that's a, um, an indeterminate process right now. We don't know how it's going to, uh, to, to turn out. But can I add one sure. thing to what Trump said? I think the uh, United States and the European countries uh, should continue bringing a lot of pressure on Iran when it comes to human rights issues. That is very important. At the end of the day, <clears throat> the Iranian <clears throat> government reacts to these uh, to these pressures. I mean, uh, the example is my case, or then later on Jason Rezaian, the Washington correspondent, because there was a lot of pressure on on the Iranian government, and yes, they did the swap, but at the end, he was freed. So, some news media already claim cheating, and that's a, a great buzzword when you're looking at these kinds of controversial agreements. Uh, any evidence uh, of, of that? Um, the Iran and the United States have both abided, and the, and the other powers associated with the agreement have abided by the terms of it. Um, one one issue that's arisen has been Iranian ballistic missile tests. Uh, the United States, um, in the negotiations, um, sought to raise the issue of ballistic missiles, uh, but uh, it really was a bridge too far to fold those into the nuclear negotiations. There was a resolution passed by the United Nations Security Council, um, which did not um, require Iran to uh, to cease uh, testing, uh, but uh, but urged it urged it to do so. This 
uh, does not go as far as critics of, of uh, Iranian policy wish, but it was it was a realistic call uh, given the dynamics within the negotiating group that the, that the Chinese and the Russians would not have supported uh, integrating a ballistic missile ban into it. And, and if we had raised the ballistic, brought mis- ballistic missiles in or other issues, then the Iranians would have raised whatever their issue was in terms of like immediate sanctions relief, uh, not on a timetable. So it was a complicated, it was a complicated process. Um, a lot of the, the, the disquiet though about the, the agreement uh, resides from the fact that Iran continues to support uh, the Assad regime and, and is engaged uh, in the Middle East uh, in ways uh, contrary to American interests. It also, we're working in tandem with Iran in Iraq uh, to support the Baghdad government against ISIS. So it's a contradictory situation, but critics of the deal will, will, will often point to Iranian activities outside the scope of the deal as evidence that the deal's not working or that it's an instance of cheating. Let me go back to to you, Doctor Esferdari, uh, for the last question, and and I want to talk about your view of the human rights situation because you obviously experienced it yourself. You keep up with it uh, on on a daily basis. Uh, how optimistic are you that this will change at all in the in the near future? And if it doesn't change, in your opinion, would it have the potential to scuttle this agreement? Um, Look, Iran is having presidential elections a year from now. And between now and uh, next August, there is not going to be any change in uh, the current status of the human rights. Iran has systematically violated the human rights uh, issues. And uh, the reason, as I mentioned in my opening remarks to you, is that the security institutions of the revolutionary guards are not dealing with arrest and execution and imprisonment of people. And they basically want to embarrass uh, the Mr. Rouhani. And Mr. Rouhani is totally helpless when it comes to uh, human rights issues. If he is elected for the second, for a second term, I think then he would be able to go to the supreme leader and say, look, I need to be in charge of the human rights issues because no matter where we go abroad, we are faced with accusations of our dismal record of human rights. I think we will see more arrests of dual nationals pushing for maybe a swap once again with the United States, more executions and the helplessness of the current government in Iran. Well, I appreciate talking to both of you. Uh, Obviously, our relationship with Iran is a highly complex, multi-level relationship, and and I appreciate your clarity in trying to help us uh, understand this. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. We've been talking with Dr. Hale Esfandiare and Dr. Robert Litvak about the status of Iran one year after our nuclear agreement. 
we want to thank you for listening to Spectrum. This podcast is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our audio engineer. I'm your host, Tom Hudson. You can listen to Spectrum on iTunes Podcasts, Google Play, and NPR One. For more information about Spectrum, go to WOUB.org.